0: All this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they'll love. Right now, think of a friend, your mom, anyone you care about. What podcast would they really love? Maybe it's the Ringer MLB show. Maybe it's something that's not about baseball. Got it? Now do it. Tell them about it in real life or on social media, which is lifelike at least. And if they don't know how to download podcasts, show them how. Tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. And thanks for spreading the word. Hello and welcome to the ringer mlb show my name is ben Lindbergh, and i'm a staff writer for the ringer.com and on the other line is a man who's gotten more vitamin d in the last week than i have probably for the last four months or so michael Dauman.
1: hello michael I, I had to find my sunscreen before I, I got down here. I was shocked that I actually own sunscreen, but here we are. <laughs> I own so much sunscreen
0: at SPF levels that you wouldn't believe were licensed by the FDA. It's I like believe it. triple digit SPF levels and it still doesn't really work for me, which is why you're in Arizona and I am in freezing snowy New York. You've been making the rounds at spring training camps. So, so this is definitely going to be a spring training themed Show. Later in the episode, we're going to talk to Dan Rosenheck, who's an editor at The Economist and did a study about spring training stats, which used to be something that people like us would say, doesn't matter, dismiss them, they don't mean anything. Dan found the opposite. So we will talk to him about why that's the case. And we're going to hear from a couple guys you have talked to in the last few days, just some scenes from spring training, and we'll talk a little bit about those clips. But first, I just wanted to ask you, there was an article Ken Rosenthal wrote about how MLB clubs have handled letting their players go to the WBC and putting restrictions on them, most notably Chris Archer, who pitched in the U.S.-Columbia game this past week and was limited to, what, 50 pitches, and he went four innings and was pitching well, and then he had to come out of the game because the Rays had set that limit and he wanted to respect it and so did manager Jim Leland and then they lost the lead and he was not thrilled about it. And Ken Rosenthal basically said that MLB teams have to decide whether they are in or out, that it's wrong to implement these limits and prevent players from really participating like players from other countries get to do. And because there is so much enthusiasm for the WBC in other countries, as we discovered when we talked last week to Octavio Hernandez there is this sort of double standard of treatment where teams might limit U.S. players but not try to impose the same limits on foreign players. So, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so I think that might it might be a raise versus you know, Jose Quintana was the the other pitcher brought up, and I think that might be right. a a raise versus White Sox thing versus mm-hmm. instead of a, a U.S. I mean, it, it is a USA versus Latin American countries thing, but you know the couple managers that I've heard talk about it, you know today, Jeff Banister was asked about Jerks and Profar and uh, and Adrian Beltre who were both away, and there were questions about their fitness, and he said once they're gone, you know, I'm I'm not going to manage the WBC. And they're not going to manage here. So you know he his view was once his players are gone, they're in the hands of their their national team manager. And Terry Francona said something interesting about Edwin Encarnacion the other day. He was asked about Encarnacion staying behind instead of going to play in the WBC, and he said like they'd rather have him in camp, but it's. But if it were important to him to go, they would have been okay with him going. You know, Mm -hmm. there's and this has been my he said what's essentially been my argument about why you should let players go is like it doesn't matter. It all it matters is they're getting reps and Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter which you know, which uniform it comes in and you know, there's you know, if, if like Profar had been seriously injured playing for the Netherlands, that would have been a black eye for the Rangers. But like, you know, this is, this happens in, in every other sport that has any sort of international presence, like international competition is important. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, there was a Noah Syndergaard thing about how Americans don't care about the WBC and and like, that's true. But at the same time, you know, I was in the, the Dodgers clubhouse during that Columbia game and the American players were out of their seats shouting about, you know, when, uh, when Nolan Arenado reached on that strike. Out so mm-hmm. uh, like it's it's just got to get a little bit of momentum, and I think that if it exists in eight years, we'll probably feel differently about it.
0: Yeah, and obviously, it doesn't really exist for American fans, or at least that's the not the primary purpose to entertain fans who are already in the country that pays the most attention to baseball. You hope that these other countries that are participating, that there will be some interest in them back home and that that will help spread the game. I don't know how effective that's been. I know, obviously, it's extremely popular in Japan. I was just reading the ratings for a Japan game and they were off the charts, but that makes a lot of sense. I don't know whether it's having the same impact in countries that don't already play baseball at a high level or have an organized baseball league. You'd hope that that's the case, but I don't even care if American fans pay attention if it is helping in other areas. It'd be nice if everyone liked it and enjoyed it. And I mean, I guess the the fear is like everyone hates when one of their team's players gets hurt in the WBC because I guess the idea is that it was almost like a diversion or A distraction. And if he had been in training camp, not playing in WBC, then the same circumstances would not have arisen and he wouldn't have been in that same situation, which is true, I guess. But I think that's sort of true. Yeah, it can be true. Like Salvador Perez got into a, a home plate collision with Drew Butera, his own backup, and looks like he's going to be okay. But that sort of specific situation, it's like a mm-hmm. butterfly flaps its wing sort of thing. If he hadn't been there, then probably that collision doesn't happen. But it's not as if guys don't get hurt in spring training all the time. So right. we don't know whether there's any elevated risk. Like You could make a case that if someone's playing in an international competition and really into it and cares about it and the fans are energized, then maybe he'd take a risk that he wouldn't take in a Cactus League game. But I don't know that anyone has shown that to be the case.
1: Right. And this is just the international baseball doesn't have that kind of track record because this isn't a discussion at all in soccer. Mm -hmm. It's and it's only kind of a discussion in basketball because Mark Cuban's a huge crybaby um, and <laughs> thinks he actually owns his players. But apart from, you know, like Paul George broke his leg and missed, you know, most of a season playing in a scrimmage for Team USA, and nobody really, I mean, there was wringing about it just because Paul George was out, but like it wasn't mm-hmm. like NBA players shouldn't play in the Olympics anymore because they might hurt their teams. It just, you know, if it's important to the players, then and it's important to the fans, then you just sort of accept that as the risk of doing business for having this very cool you know, showcase event for the sport.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did the World Cup get to that point? Obviously now it's at that point. It's it has a very long tradition, but it does interfere with schedules in domestic soccer leagues. I don't know mm-hmm. whether it has anything to do with the fact that baseball is different in that it has one league that is acknowledged to be the highest level league in the world. And so if this gets in the way with that then maybe there's a, a difference because that's sort of the mm-hmm. the epitome of baseball, and maybe soccer doesn't quite have that equivalent. There are high level leagues all over the place that are going on all the time.
1: Yeah, I keep I keep drawing the parallel. Like the World Cup started in 1930 and didn't really become a thing until 1950. So uh-huh. like that's. The time frame that that I think you need to yeah. to build a consensus, you know, it didn't, and even then, like there was, it, it took a while to turn into what it actually is today. But like, there's really the league setup in hockey is is kind of similar to to baseball because there's mm-hmm. the dominant North American league, and then the Russians have a league that's probably NPB, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. better, um, and they interrupt the season. But there's not like the big thing that about baseball is the wear and tear on the pitchers. Mm-hmm. like i don't there's not a parallel in another sport to that like there's it's harder to play 100 games a season than 82 in hockey and basketball but it's not like it's not, it's just not the same and i that's the the one thing i don't have an answer for.
0: Yeah. And, and that does make me sympathize with the Rays or with Chris Archer or with a manager who has to respect those yeah, limits. And, and, and why Jim Leland has been on the other side of that as a manager of the Tigers.
1: The other thing is the tournament rules say that Archer could only throw in 65 pitches anyway. Mm-hmm. So limiting him to 50 instead of 65 just seems. Right. It's, it's kind of uh,
0: maybe it's being a little too strict. On the other hand, this is the time of the year that is the greatest danger for pitchers, as I've researched in the past. And Trevor May with the twins looks like the latest to suffer a spring training injury that could lead to Tommy John surgery. But this is the time, March is the peak for when pitchers suffer injuries that lead to surgeries, not just Tommy John, although it is the, the biggest time for Tommy. John, too. And that has a lot to do, I think, with the fact that. Pitchers are coming back from a winter of relative inactivity and they're trying to ramp up. And if they go too fast, then you're in a greater danger than you might be at some other point in the season when you've acclimated to that workload. So, in that sense, Chris Archer is really important to the Rays. And, you know, they are uh, the ultimate data driven team that has done a ton of research into pitcher injuries. And if they have come up with some program that's designed to, minimize them and they have been pretty successful at, at doing that over the last several seasons then i sympathize with them as unfortunate as it is for archer or for fans of the u.s team to see him removed early his greatest concern and the team's greatest concern has to be his day job that is making him many millions of dollars so i don't know that that's entirely avoidable for major leaguers
1: yeah it's it's the cost of doing business and you know i'm I I think it's a little micromanaging for the Rays to make that distinction over 15 pitches. But, you know, if that's what you need to get Chris Archer in the tournament, then I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. All right. So
0: let's use a little audio here from your travels over the past week. So first of all, set the scene for us. Give us your your clubhouse technique. First of all, uh, what, are, <laughs> what are the accoutrement of your reporting? What are you carrying with you in the clubhouse? What are you wearing? What's your What's your clubhouse style?
1: Well, usually I wear a collared shirt and not actual khakis. I've been wearing <laughs> a, a pair of red pants around. Red, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've become the kind of guy who wears slim fit red trousers. <laughs> and I think I like this development about myself. It's and cowboy me. boots. Yeah. Well, I didn't bring them with me. I haven't broken them in yet. <laughs> And I don't know if they fit inside the the skinny jeans. Anyway.
0: One day, one day you message me that you're getting cowboy boots. And then the next day you tell me you're going to a rodeo. You are really living the Texas life. These boots
1: have changed you. They're so I I I want to actually get to Brandon Geyer and Cole Hammond's. So there's only, but like I could talk about how much I love these cowboy boots for 20 minutes. Cause like this was this was an extremely expensive, ironic purchase. Mm-hmm. And then I put them on. And I was like, these are amazing. I <laughs> never want to wear any other shoes again. So, okay.
0: So you've got your slim fit red pants. Yeah. You've got your college shirt. You've got your ringer badge, your lanyard my around your lanyard, neck, presumably. If it's cold
1: out, I wear my ringer hoodie and I've uh-huh. got a, a notebook in my phone. And okay. it's like a middle school dance where everybody's <laughs> sort of standing around the wall. Exactly. Which, which right. has absolutely no emotional baggage for me whatsoever in terms of anxiety <laughs> and talking to strangers. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, can we can we role play here? Can we uh, get over your your fears? So here I'm. I'm Joe, baseball player. Okay. I'm sitting at my cubby. Yeah, and you, got, am, you gotta I'm wait for the guy naked. to be sitting, sitting yeah, in this I'm,
1: locker. And, you yeah, know, right. not I'm on a doing stool anything. or something. I'm, yeah. I'm
0: half naked. I am staring at my iPhone. Maybe I've got the earbuds in. You are Michael Bauman, intrepid ringer reporter in search of a story. How do you approach me? How do you, how do you get my attention? I
1: walk up to you and I say, Hey, Joe, and we make eye contact. I, I grunt, I I extend my hand and I say, I'm Mike Bauman from the ringer. Do you have a minute? And wow. All right. Yeah. And 90% of the time they say yes. And if they're going to do something else, yeah, they go do something else.
0: Right. Yeah. So I've I got a meeting, got to get to the
1: field. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That happened to me. <laughs> and my favorite is the, I've, you know, I've got to, I've got to throw, I've got to take batting practice. I got to eat right, breakfast, yes. something like that. <laughs> you know, I'll get you when the clubhouse opens back up at, at 11 and then they don't show up. <laughs> right. But
0: yes. Also Very. like,
1: a, also like a middle school dance.
0: Yes, some some players are quite skilled at uh, avoiding reporters. So okay, so we've set the scene here. I like that you uh, you come right out. You do the hand. I don't I don't do the hand usually because I, I don't know. I don't want to like touching strangers is weird. Does that seem familiar to you? No, you I, know, think like, like I think it's I admire or... it. No, I think it's great. I, it's probably a good tactic because when someone reaches out to shake your hand then you've really made a connection. And now it's harder probably to to say that you have to go take BP or something because... Now you have a relationship. You've yeah. touched each other, so that's probably a, a smart tactic. And wow, you say the affiliation right there. So, yeah, when I was at Grantland, I used to say ESPN. so yeah, if I was I still have at to Grantland, explain. I would have.
1: <laughs> I had to explain what the ringer was to Cole Hamels this morning, and it was, <laughs> it was. I'm shocked. The rest of the conversation went as well as it did after I stammered for about a minute trying to explain what we are to someone who's like not up on media, but <laughs> right. Well, he asked.
0: That's the thing that set him apart. You told me he was the only yeah. player who asked what the ringer was. That's why he is a possible Hall of Famer. All right, so let's play a few minutes of Cole Himmels.:
2: I mean, as much as you know, we do get older. It does, it's, it's things He has tornuses, you, you know, that, that you kind of don't necessarily have had as much, or you know, when you push it, you're, you're you might get a little bit more tired. Um, but that's kind of what it is. I mean, that's you know, to be an athlete, you're going to have to push through. You know, good times, bad times. It's it's not going to be easy.
1: Yeah, and you know, are you changing? it? You know, you hear about like Steve Nash he used to when he was getting into his late thirties, was eating like nothing but brown rice. You know, no, it doesn't have to be.
2: That's actually, I think, what I've ever since I've turned thirty, my diet's been more focused. And I was always had a good diet, mm-hmm. and I always would exercise throughout the year. But I think you become more specific. Uh, and, and just try to utilize what we now have, you know, available, which is a lot better than when we first came in. Um, you know, and just kind of you're, you're going through there. You guys doing any, like, you hear about the pirates
1: doing, like, biometric stuff. You, you guys do any of that around here? You know, like heart rate monitors, sleep um, monitors. You
2: know? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's so much technology that, you know, I've, I've found a, a few few key uh, you know, pieces that I now use mm-hmm. um, that I think will help me and, and have helped me in the past. And you just kind of add a little bit here and there. But you can get so inundated where you, you've got a, a bag for your equipment, you've got a bag for all your technology gadgets. And, and sometimes it can be overload. Um, but you have to find out what you really do like and what works for you because. You've been around, you've seen it. Everybody is different. Everybody reacts differently. And now as science has really kind of proven, from genetics to, to you know how you work, everybody's different. Nobody's the same. So you have to find out what's gonna work for you and then stick to it.
1: What do you think about teams using that kind of data? Like does it the idea of like a team assigning you a sleep monitor, does that feel you know, like an invasion of privacy at all or I think if you allow it to be
2: invasion of privacy, you're going to have a hard time, but I think if you're, you're, you know, we're athletes, we're in it for the the reason of being, trying to be the most competitive person and trying to succeed and, and to do it for as long as we possibly can, so you have to respect the fact that, you know, a team wants you to be better. And they're trying to find ways to make you better. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, kind of that sort of big brother attitude that you know they're, they're always watching, and, and you can never. I'm not necessarily slack off. you can't go enjoy a moment here and there. Um, you know, you just have to kind of take things in moderation and really, truly understand that this is a serious business and a serious job, and we have to treat it such because it doesn't last forever.
1: And one last one, and I apologize if you've covered this territory elsewhere. Is the beard staying around for, for
2: the oh, regular season? Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I, I know it's. I just can't it was imagine a fun, it was being outside. And, so, I can't imagine being yeah. outside in, in Dallas in July hot. with that. No, that'll be a new experience for me. So we'll see how. Uh, how more cleaned up it'll be. Okay. And if, if you're taking yeah.
1: suggestions, I enjoyed yeah. the mustache with uh, we had with the fillers for a couple I know. of years. I thought I always, it looked really I good. I
2: always used to do that because in spring training, I'd grow out, grow out with Cliff. Cliff mm. and I would always grow out our beards, and I know Holiday would kind of do his, but he always kept his more trim. And then right before the season, I'd always want to be more clean cut. Wow. So I would just for those two exhibition games, I would run around with a mustache, and guys couldn't take me serious. So <laughs> it never really lasted. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that was Cole Hamels, and as a bearded Texas resident yourself, I assume that you have an opinion about wearing a beard in July in Texas. That it's sounds terrible. like a yeah. sounds like a bad idea.
1: And I was pro mustache. <laughs> I used to have a T-shirt with a uh, with a picture of Cole Hamels with a mustache on it, but I didn't tell him that because you know, yeah, we shook yeah. hands, but we not super it, wasn't that much probably. of a, a connection. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So Cole Hamels talking about aging, that's interesting because he is... I had this discussion with someone once not long ago, is Cole Hamels a Hall of Famer or will Cole Hamels be a Hall of Famer? And it entirely depends basically on how well he ages because he's... This will be his age 33 season, and he is well along the way. If he has uh, another productive several seasons, then I could definitely see him as a guy who gets elected. It kind of depends on whether Hall of Fame voters ever adjust their mental rubric for what constitutes yeah, a he's only, Hall of Fame he's, pitcher.
1: I don't even know if he gets to 200 wins.
0: Right. Good. Yes. By historical standards, there might be no active Hall of Fame pitchers right now, but hopefully those standards will, will change. And he hasn't really shown any sign of decline. He is like a 45 to 50-ish wins above replacement player guy. And once a guy gets around the 60 range, you start thinking of him, yeah. of him as a, a potential Hall of Famer. So really, he just needs a, a couple more seasons as good as last season, basically. To get to that range, he's he's never really had like the highest peak. I mean, maybe his like Hall of Fame peak, he might not qualify for the standards there. Yeah, but he's just been he's productive for a very a long around time.
1: Around guy, I mean, part of the yeah. problem with that is like he had a couple Hall of Fame quality seasons in like 2011, 2012, But you know, he was the third best pitcher on his own team in those years. Mm-hmm. Like you yeah. know, so. It's tough to win the the Cy Young when you're he was probably good enough to do it in at least one of those seasons. But if Roy Halliday or Cliff Lee is also having a historic season then it's right. just going to tamper with the dull of the legacy a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I was having this conversation with someone in the Rangers media today that you know I always like the the Tom Glavin comp for Hamels mm-hmm. just in terms of an athletic, you know smooth delivery lefty with good command. And if he pitches as long as Glavin, I think that he's going to get to 60 wins, no sweat.
0: Mm-hmm. And what he said about biometric monitoring and sleep tracking not having to be scary not having to be something that teams are exploiting, but something that can work for the player. That's definitely true and that's probably a a healthy way to look at it and if the player is empowered to see the data that the team can see and to make use of it that does seem like it could be a a powerful tool but inevitably there will be times where it comes back to bite a player just because he's performing well or whatever but something about what he does off the field just points to a player who won't age particularly well you know something along those lines that will be the big test case.
1: And I think that speaks to with the biometric stuff and even like... You know the player development or, or you know sheltering pitchers or whatever like as much as we and I probably complain about this as much as you know the exploitation of players or the moral hazard as much as anybody in baseball media but the incentives of the players in the team align perfectly the overwhelming majority of the time so you know I yeah. think what he said about it feel it can feel like Big brother if you let it it's probably true and if you're mm-hmm. if that just doesn't bother you then you might as well take advantage of it okay so the this next guy we're about to
0: hear from this player has been on your interview bucket list for a while.
1: I was more nervous. I was I uh I had one-on-ones with Mike Trout and Corey Seeger uh, uh-huh. the day after this, and I wasn't as nervous for either of them as I was for for Brandon Geyer.
0: Yes, Brandon Geyer. He's been a he's been a target of ours for a while, and you have hunted him down. As well as down. the
1: pitchers of the, the American <laughs> League. He's been a target of theirs.
0: Yes. So this will be a quicker clip. Here is Brandon Geyer.
1: I got to ask about the hit-by-pitches, you know, since that's such a big part of your game. Like, do you feel anything on the side of your body anymore when you you get hit? I still feel when I get hit, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, it's not a good pain. Obviously, I like those those numbers that go down, but um, it happens to me a lot. Hey, as long as I'm not getting hurt, I'm getting on base, guys are driving me in. You know, I'm fine. You thought about, you know, since that's really the worst thing a pitcher can do to you, is that free up? You know, you could pimp your home runs. You could <laughs> run across the, the mound if you want. Yeah, yeah. but I, when I, my natural swing is when I swing, it's like short. I get out of the box quick. Like I wouldn't, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to pimp a home run. Like, I just don't know how to. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I couldn't do that. It's all right. I know they're not trying to hit me on purpose, but mm-hmm. it's fine. Yeah.
0: So what strikes me about this is that Brandon Geier says and sounds convincing when he says that he does not want to be hit by baseballs. And he is the all time leader in hit by pitch percentage among major leaguers of some minimum playing time. And obviously he does not go to great lengths not to be hit. By baseballs. If you right. watch him in the batter's box, he stands fairly close to the plate, not so close that you would think he'd be getting drilled all the time, but not then Craig he Vigio steps close. Yeah. Right. Or even Anthony Rizzo close, but then he steps onto the plate <laughs> just about. Like there was a, an example that former Fangraphs writer August Fagerstam found last year where he was hit by. A pitch inside the strike zone. David Price hit him with a pitch that was inside the strike zone. August found a nearly identically located pitch thrown by Price that had been a called strike earlier in the season, and Price couldn't believe it, and there was a, a funny reaction. If you go strictly by the letter of the law in the rule book, which says that the player is supposed to make some effort to get out of the way, I don't know that Brandon Kyer yeah, is always
1: in accordance with that rule. But. but it's like he's not sticking his elbow out or doing that thing that Chase Sutley did all the time where he's he turns his back to the inside pitch, but in so doing, like leaves his elbow farther out than it would be in his normal yeah. stance. But the interesting thing with Geyer is so many like when you get hit by a lot of pitches, it's usually on the arms and the torso. Right. And Geyer gets hit in the legs constantly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So my theory about this is I looked up his splits over the past couple years when he the hit-by-pitch rate really took off. And mm-hmm. it's been about 50-50 over the past couple of years, the, the distribution of the bats versus lefties or righties. And lefties hit him something like 39 times and righty's hit him like 14 times, which makes me think because he hits lefties so well, you got to really get inside on him or you're trying mm-hmm. to throw the back foot slider. And if, if Geyer standing relatively close to the plate, never moving when the ball comes in, he's going to wear the literal back foot slider a lot of the time. <laughs> so that's yeah. my theory on it. It's also possible that he lied to me and this is <laughs> you know, something that...
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's even more impressive that lefties have hit him so many times because there are fewer lefties, so you would expect the opposite. The hit by pitch rate against them is just crazy.
1: Just because Geyer gets platooned and uh, plays against lefties more, I think he's faced. I don't have the the numbers right in front of me right now, but like it's close to fifty fifty over the past couple years. But he's faced slightly more lefties, but the the uh, the ratio is way out of whack.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Well, you will have some stories coming out based on the reporting that you did while you were down there. So people can look for that on the ringer.com. Glad we finally got Geyer on the podcast. I know this is huge for you. It's so the thrill of the week. It it made my successful trip. All right. Well, we will take a quick break to tell you about a sponsor and then we will be back with Dan Rosenheck to talk even more about spring training. So say you're in the Rangers clubhouse, asking Cole Hamels about his beard. When you think, did I close that window? Did I lock the garage? These questions can nag at you while you're out of the house and can drive you nuts. Thankfully, you don't have to worry when you have Simply Safe home security. With an arsenal of sensors equipped to protect your entire home and family, Simply Safe offers an extra layer of protection that will put your mind at ease. Just recently, Simply Safe released a high definition camera that connects your security system to your smartphone, so you can see everything that's going on at your home, no matter where you are. Best of all, it's only 15 bucks a month. That's a third of. What other companies charge, and there are no long-term contracts or hidden fees. Simply Safe has gotten rid of everything that makes most home security systems such a pain. So go check out Simply Safe and the new camera today. You'll get an exclusive 10% discount when you go to simplysafe.com/slash ringer. That's SimpliSafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash ringer. All right. So Michael has been in spring training for the past few days, and maybe even unbeknownst to him, he's been watching some significant statistics being compiled. And certainly an earlier generation of analysts might have denied that. But a couple of years ago in The Economist, Dan Rosenheck, who is a data editor and sports editor for The Economist, wrote an article about spring training statistics, and he came to some conclusions that counteracted the earlier consensus, and he's joining us now. Hi, Dan. Hi. So you found that the early generation of sabermetricians, it was basically accepted truth that spring training stats didn't matter. You could ignore the entire month. Maybe you'd pay attention to guys coming back from injury or that sort of thing. But for the most part, you could just toss out the stats entirely. You found something different. Why did that earlier generation come to an erroneous conclusion?
3: Great question. I think it must have been because they weren't looking at the right numbers Mm -hmm. or they weren't asking the right questions. Because on the very simple question of are they playing the same game in spring training as they play in the regular season, if you look at some just basic baseball card stats, strikeout rate, walk rate for both hitters and pitchers, you're going to see extremely strong correlations. The same guys who strike out a lot or strike out a lot of opposing batters in spring training go on to do so in the regular season. Same with walks. Um, Certainly same with ground ball to fly ball ratio. So the idea that this is just... A totally different experience, and the players aren't trying, and they're getting into shape, and therefore we should pretend the games didn't happen. We shouldn't count anything that occurs in them. You know, the simplest of scatter would disprove it. Now, a, a slightly further question is: Okay, well, maybe they're playing a similar game, but nonetheless the information you see in spring training doesn't tell you anything that you didn't already know, Mm -hmm. that if you were to combine in a projection spring training stats with other data you previously had, that the blend wouldn't be any better. But I found that that wasn't the case either, and in fact, adding the spring training stats uh, significantly improved the blend. So I think my best guess would be that the reason that earlier generations of sabermetricians didn't see this is because they perhaps failed to apply the lessons from one sort of canonical chapter of Sabermetrics 1.0 to another. So certainly the definitive quantitative baseball study sort of a really my adult lifetime was Forrest McCracken's finding uh, in the late 90s that pitchers had very little control over the outcomes of balls hitting the play against them. And that therefore, looking at statistics that would be very influenced by um, balls in play, things like adding average for hitters or ERA for pitchers, those stats tended to be very noisy and unreliable in small samples. And spring training is obviously a small sample. And sure enough, if you scatter plot batting average in spring training against batting average in the regular season or ERA, it's going to be very noisy, just as it would be if you scatter plotted that from, you know, April to the rest of the year. And the same with home, you know, home runs if you're only counting single digits of things. But if you look at the stats that we know are robust, if you look at just strikeouts, walks, and ground balls, it's the same game. Those are stable, robust and predictive in small samples in the regular season, and they are stable, robust and predictive in spring training.
1: Part of what you've been doing is adding spring training stats to Dan Zaborski's Zips projections. So how do do those two work together?
3: So it's really quite a straightforward process. I mean, for the study, I did it with using Zips as a baseline. In fact, I have my own projection system that I add these numbers onto that includes some more variables, but I just use Zips because it's sort of, you know, widely recognized for being pretty good and anybody can download it. Really, I just take the basic component stats. So, as I said, for pitchers, it's strikeout rate, walk rate, and ground ball to fly ball ratio. For hitters, it's strikeout weight, walk rate. I took isolated power on contact, just on the principle that if you're dealing with small samples, you know, you hit a ball a long way. Sometimes it's a double, sometimes it's a homer. What I care about is that you hit it far. Batting average on contact, which is very noisy, and as you would expect, the weakest of them. And then I look at stolen base attempt rate. And for each of these five, in the case of hitters, three in the case of pitchers, component statistics, I have the benchmark preseason forecast, be it or Pakoda or Steamer or whatever special sauce I come up with. And then I assign a weight to that preseason projection, which is based on how reliable it is. In other words, how much knowledge we previously have, how much information we previously have about that player. So if you've been playing in the majors for 10 years and we have a pretty good idea of what your strikeout rate is, then the weight on that preseason projection is going to be very high. Conversely, if you're a rookie and all we have is minor league translations, or if you're a Cuban import and we really know very little about you, then the weight on that preseason projection is going to be rather low because um, we have less confidence in it. And that weight will typically be denominated in some unit of playing time. So, you know, plate appearances or at-bats or innings or whatever it is. And then I just literally take the spring training numbers. I adjust them for league, you know, cactus versus grapefruit, Arizona, Florida. And I adjust them for the spring training league average in that year. So if there are fluctuations, if one year there's a lot more homers hit in Florida than there were the year before that, I adjust for that. Just straight normalize the league average. And then I say, okay, say, I'm just making up numbers here, but let's say I feel I've got a thousand at-bats worth of information about your strikeout rate based on all previous knowledge, based on your preseason forecasts. So then I'll just add on, you say you had 80 spring training at-bats. So I'll literally just take a weighted average if you have 80 spring training at-bats. I'll take 1,000 at-bats of your preseason projections strikeout rate, add on 80 at-bats of your spring training strikeout rate, and divide by 1080. That's literally it, and just repeat for the other components.
0: I guess maybe the the instinct to just completely dismiss spring training stats was in some sense a response to perhaps going too far in the other direction and someone has a hot spring and he's not someone who's even really on the radar and then he makes the major league roster yeah, on the basis of that hot spring. I'd say spring. that's
1: exactly what it is.
0: Right. Like I mean, it's kind of the same thing with like platoon splits, that sort of thing, where, you know, they may have some predictive power. Some recent studies have shown, but On the other hand, you have managers making decisions or at least saying that they're making decisions based on, you know, five for nine or something like that, that probably doesn't have any predictive power. So I guess you can kind of blame both sides, perhaps maybe the early analysts who were really studying this wrong stats and coming to the wrong conclusions. But in a sense, maybe they were just reflexively recoiling whenever they read some quote from a manager giving a job to a guy who was not going to get a job and then had a hot fifty at bats, which you know might increase his his expectations slightly, but probably not enough to go from out of work to employed in the big leagues.
3: Yeah, that that I think is is completely right. I think that you're you're almost certainly right. that There was a tendency to uh, to overcorrect, and in no circumstances will a spring training project will will spring training ever make up the majority of somebody's forecast. You know, it can move you. I think at the extremes, I found it can move you about 75 points of forecast ERA or OPS at the absolute extremes. So the difference between a glorious spring and a terrible one for a rookie about whom we have low confidence, you know, would be an effect of that magnitude. Now, that now that obviously can be enough to move move a player from not deserving a spot on a team to deserving a spot on a team. But it's not going to turn a scrub into a superstar or vice versa. It's it's just an adjustment. And obviously, those are the extreme cases. And most adjustments are far, far
1: smaller than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's why, you know, when I first started reading this, I was going, no, 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 no. Don't make me like make judgments on, on like 50 at bats where the quality of competition is, is just so uneven. Like I've seen Keenan Middleton pitch twice in the past four days. You know, this is not, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, I'd much rather make, you know, completely disregard it than try to draw meaningful conclusions from this, which sort of brings up uh, it's not a it's not a criticism, but it's a, a shortcoming of a lot of this sort of large end. Uh, statistical uh, analysis that we see in baseball, it's the difficulty is in drilling down from the whole to the one because this isn't about, you know, when we're talking about Ben or me making predictions for this coming season or managers, you know, deciding who's going to get playing time, like it's not about in general, it's about one particular guy. So, I guess, is is there a capability of identifying, you know, which outliers this is going to affect most, or are we just looking for the, the biggest zip swing? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, I, the way I would manage my fantasy baseball team, and when it comes to spring training, what I would encourage, you know, major league teams to do to a certain extent, they obviously also have scouting information, some of which is valuable and can also improve a forecast. And if I had you know, access to those reports, I might be able to produce yet better projections as well. But just dealing with the numbers that are publicly available, I mean, I would say that teams should give their 25 roster spots to the the player each position who projects to have the most wins above replacement, and those numbers can and will change as a result of spring training performances. And that data is real and you can count it and it's significant and you will be a worse team and a worse manager if you choose to ignore it and pretend it didn't happen. And if that winds up bumping, you know, if you've got a position battle and you had two guys that were, you know, maybe somewhat close in their projected value and one guy has a great spring and one guy has a terrible spring. That probably should make the difference. And similarly, if you have, you know, a couple guys battling it out for the last roster spot and they all project to be sort of around replacement level, you probably should take the one that had the really great swing, the really great spring, because those 30 projected points of OPS probably make him the best bet to be the most valuable. But in, in terms of trying to determine, of all the guys who had a big spring, you know which one is likely to have the most impact. I think the numbers available on the internet convey a certain amount of information. And I've built a simple model that can hopefully measure that. But to get more accurate, you would need either more granular quantitative measures. And certainly I know there is either a stat cast or a pitch FX set up or both in some but not all of the spring training ballparks. And you can get actual spring training velocity numbers for, for pitchers in some cases now. And that, you know, presumably has meaningful predictive power. And teams have scouting reports and, you know, presumably they have exit velocities and all of those things are going to give you probably yet more robust, reliable, predictive information on which teams can and should make decisions, um, you know, than the stuff that I can get just downloading from online.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And although I did just
0: sort of defend the sabermetricians who came to the wrong conclusion, I think it is also fair, as you point out at the end of your piece. There really have been a lot of instances where the kind of analytical consensus, maybe a decade ago or more, has turned out to be, if not completely wrong, at least a little off base. It has turned out in many cases that the old school belief that I think early sabermetric writers were just wired to contradict if they, if they could, or at least that was the impulse for examining some of these things, that sort of received wisdom has often turned out to have a kernel of truth or, or maybe more than that. So maybe this isn't the most glaring instance, but there have been a, a lot of cases where we've discovered that it turns out that the people who've been in baseball their whole lives and things that people in baseball have been saying for 100 plus years had some merit to them.
3: Absolutely. And I, I do think there has uh one of the consistent trends across, I don't know which generation you'd call it, sabermetrics 2, 3, 4.0, whatever, has been that in the earlier generation, say the Bill James generation, when you were limited to baseball card stats, there was a lot that those sort of brute counting numbers couldn't capture. And I think that a lot of Early generation baseball statisticians confused absence of evidence with evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. And that as we have gotten ever more granular information about what goes on in the field, we are now able to measure and predict using numbers that wind up validating a lot of things that old baseball hands were saying all along, whether it's catcher framing or, you know, I myself have done work on. I mentioned Boris McCracken earlier. It turns out that just with two readily available statistics on fan graphs, you can do a great job of predicting the batting average on balls in play that pitchers allow. But those numbers weren't available when Boris was doing his study. So I think that just knowing... How much your numbers are measuring and what they might be leaving out is just really important to bear in mind before you proclaim that conventional wisdom in the sport, um, you know, is 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 grossly misguided in the old fire Joe Morgan website snarky tone. That said, we were talking about overcorrecting earlier. It also looks like some of the clichés that were handed, that have been handed down for decades are in fact as ill founded as the earlier generations of statisticians thought they were and behavior and major league teams behavior is changing accordingly i mean, i, I wrote a few so last fall about just bullpen management i mean i was i and every other member of the sabermetric chorus for 20 years has been decrying the, the cult of the one inning closer which of course itself You know, only dates back to Dennis Eckersley, so the late 80s. And sure enough, in the playoffs last year, you started seeing, you know, guys like Andrew Miller being used in the fifth inning and Kenley Jansen in the seventh. And those guys went on to win. And then, you know, the Orioles let Zach Britton rot on the bench and they lost. So I think that, you know, some old conventional wisdom about closers needing to have fire in the belly and only being used in save situations. It looks like that really was wrong. Whereas maybe the thing about spring training stats really, really was it turned out to be right. So I think that just the the lesson of do your homework and keep an open mind and when the facts change and new numbers come in, be prepared to change your mind is, you know, that kind of intellectual honesty is the most is the most we can ask for.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's that's the whole ball game, so to speak, is just knowing when to reevaluate and which data to trust. And it's just I mean, it's difficult, particularly when you got a lot of the sources of, of analysis are also peddling data, whether it's MLB or, you know, fan and baseball perspectives have their own proprietary metrics. And so everybody's got a you know, skin in the game in terms of trying to persuade people that, that their way of looking at things is right. And it just makes it difficult to turn around and, and reevaluate it. You know, it takes a lot of, paradoxically, it takes a lot of self-confidence to admit you were wrong about something.
3: I, yeah, I, I, I certainly have. There have been a number of cases where I have uh, gone back and looked at some of the columns that I was writing for the New York Times in the, I guess, late aughts or 2010, 2011 that were regurgitating conventional sabermetric wisdom at the time. And then more recently, I worked for The Economist. I just called myself out and been like, yep, blew that one. Should have cut my mouth shut. But I. Thought I thought I knew what was going on. Turns out sometimes just millions of bucks had better numbers than I did.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lastly, since we've just tried to convince everyone that spring training stats do matter and they should at least glance at the relevant leaderboards and see who's doing something far out of line with expectations. Do you think that that applies less in a WBC year than it would in a normal spring training year, just because the talent is even further diluted?
3: Good question. I haven't studied that, yes, you would expect that in a WBC year, you're going to have a lower quality of play across spring training. And what that's going to do is it's going to blow out the standard deviation. So you're going to have the major league stars who are not in the WBC are going to be facing softer spring training competition. And so they're going to exceed the average by a larger amount. So yes, it actually is completely true. I hadn't thought about that, but I could include that as a variable. Thank you for bringing (laughs) that to my attention, that you would expect that a model that is calibrated to non-WBC years will overestimate the impact of spring training stats for the the guys who didn't plan the WC and you probably want to scrunch those impacts a little back towards the mean. And conversely, in the three three years out of four when the WBC is not played, you would probably want to overweight the spring training stats a little more than I do. Um I will seek to incorporate that in this year's model. Thank you for the suggestion.
0: <laughs> Darn it WBC, you're screwing up Dan's projections. All right. <laughs> well you can read Dan's article which he will now have to update, so it is obsolete and irrelevant. No, that's not true. You should go back and read it. But you can see his work at The Economist, and you can find him on Twitter at Dan Rosenheck. Dan, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to
0: be here. All right. That's it for this week. It's been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Next week, Michael, will be back in Texas, and we'll be back on your feed. Until then, enjoy the mostly meaningless, but not entirely meaningless baseball.